0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of creation messages that John Whitcomb, Jr. presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb, Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Now, here is John Whitcomb, Jr. on Today in the Word radio. This morning, we consider some further aspects of the great flood in the days of Noah— which according to the New Testament scriptures was the greatest single demonstration of the sovereignty and holiness and power of God that this world has ever seen in the realm of judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3 lays the foundation for the significance of this great judgment of God at the dawn of history. The apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Yesterday morning we saw that this passage points very definitely to a crisis that the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, must face at the end of the age a crisis of attitude on the part of men everywhere, even those who profess to be Christians with regard to the possibility of the direct supernatural miraculous intervention of Jesus Christ into the affairs of this world to bring men face to face with himself in judgment. A very unpopular doctrine today, I might say one that certainly does not bring comfort to the hearts of men who are not right with God, who really wouldn't want to see him if they could. From him, men flee to seek the hiding of darkness. And the Apostle Peter tells us in this very startling passage of Scripture that the attitudes that will be expressed by men in these last days toward this second coming of Christ— will be built upon the pseudo-scientific philosophy of the eternal uniformity of nature's processes. They will say all things have continued as they were. God has never done anything like this, and therefore we may be sure he never will. Christians, therefore, would do well to be very cautious about this particular problem of the uniformity of nature which has today become a religion in many scientific circles. Peter's answer to this false philosophy is an appeal to the Genesis flood of the days of Noah. This they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And of course, the book of Genesis is perfectly clear in telling us that this catastrophe whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished was a universal flood of waters covering all the high mountains under the whole heaven by a depth of at least 22 feet above the highest peak in order that the ark might be preserved from destruction that this catastrophe began not by natural processes but by the direct supernatural intervention of god whereby oceans suddenly rose upon continents and the vast upper canopy of waters collapsed to the earth in six weeks of unprecedented downpour all over the world. The flood was miraculous in its origin. It was universal in its effects. But there are indeed many problems concerning such a concept that have staggered the minds of men. In fact, problems so enormous that many who even profess to be Christians have not been able to bring themselves to take seriously the biblical evidence of a universal flood in the days of Noah. One of these problems is the size of Noah's ark. Could Noah, even in a 100 years of time, have built an ark so gigantic that it could have contained within itself two of every kind of air-breathing creature in the world? To be preserved through such a flood. It has been my privilege for a number of years to investigate this type of problem, and I'm happy to say this morning that uh, the more the biblical text is studied, the more obvious it becomes to any unbiased observer that Noah's Ark was a perfectly appropriate provision for such an emergency. The Ark, you see, with its dimensions of 45 feet high, 75 feet wide, and 450 feet long, had a capacity of 1,400,000 cubic feet. That's equivalent to 522 railroad boxcars if you've ever been stopped at a railroad crossing watching slow freight trains move by. Meditate on this with regard to the magnitude and capacity of this flat-bottom, square-sided barge that God instructed Noah to build for the flood. Yes, two of every kind of animal known in the world today, air-breathing creatures, could fit in one and a half of the three decks of Noah's Ark, leaving room for all the food that was to be stored, for the varieties of living things, and for Noah and his family. I believe that when we face the statistics The actual figures provided in scripture, we can see that not only was the ark large enough for its God-intended purpose, but the very necessity of having an ark at all is proof that the flood was universal. If the flood was a local catastrophe, Noah could have been warned to flee to some other region of the world to say nothing of the animals and the birds, and the whole account becomes ridiculous on any other terms than a universal catastrophe. But there's another problem that uh, men have faced, and that is, granted that Noah could build such an ark, how could he have brought the animals to the ark? Here again, a careful study of the scripture alleviates the problem when we discover that God himself explains how it was accomplished. It's true that a first glance at Genesis 6, 19 might lead us to believe that this was Noah's responsibility. Because God told him, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark. And many people stop reading there, throw up their hands in horror, and imagine the the impossibility of coaxing 35 or 40,000 animals of half that number of varieties to come into his ark to be saved through a flood. But the next verse solves the problem. Genesis 6.20 says that these creatures, two of every sort, shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And so this is how it happened. According to Genesis 7-9, there went in two and two unto Noah, into the ark, the male and the female, as God commanded Noah. When the hour of crisis came, in the final seven days before the flood began, God directed these creatures, two by two, to this sole place of refuge, a stupendous supernatural intervention. The scriptures provide the basis for our understanding of how it happened. And of course, apart from the presupposition of an eternal, omnipotent God, this would be impossible to conceive. Animals don't behave this way under normal conditions. But if there's a God who can create animals in the first place, he's certainly able to bring them Two by two, to a designated spot for accomplishing his purposes. <clears throat> Another problem that has been raised is that of the care of these animals in the ark during the year of the flood. Now, I have never been a farmer caring for dairy cattle, for example, or sheep or pigs, but I can imagine what this would have been if Noah and his family were left to their own merely human resources in coping with this staggering problem. Can you imagine being cooped up in a floating menagerie with 35,000 animals on a shoreless ocean, tossed to and fro for a year, trying to control these creatures, most of them wild animals, to see that they were properly fed, provided with fresh meat in many cases. And can you imagine the problem of sanitation Well, many have drawn uh, very dismal word pictures of such a situation in order to make the whole idea absurd. Well, I believe that God is a God of order and not of confusion and that God somehow had resources available to cope with this problem. In fact, the Bible gives us, I think, some very strong hints as to how it was done. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, Right in the midst of the great flood, this significant statement is made. And God remembered Noah and all the living things and cattle with him in the ark. Whenever that word appears in the Bible, God remembered someone or something. It always means that he takes special care of that person providing for all his needs. Just as the thief on the cross said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said, Verily I say unto thee, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. I will make full provision for you, providing for all your needs. It's a dynamic word when God is the subject. It doesn't mean much when I'm the subject for you. Think then of what this is really saying. During the great flood, God remembered or took special care of Noah and all the animals in the ark. How did he do this? I believe that when these creatures were led to the thousands of built-in compartments in this huge structure and partook of the food provided for them there, that God, as it were, put them to sleep. A supernatural hibernation experience so that throughout the year of the flood, their bodily functions were reduced to a minimum. And Noah and his family did not have to care for the needs of these creatures. How do we know this? Well, we do know that the animals entered the ark two by two, don't we? A year later, they came out two by two. There was certainly no multiplication of species during that year of the flood in the ark, for which I'm sure Noah was profoundly grateful. And when we turn to Genesis chapter 8, verse 17, this idea takes on new significance to me when it says that when the flood was over, God commanded Noah to bring forth all the animals in this ark in order that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. In other words, life began again, in effect, for the animal kingdom. When the flood was over and God released them from the supernatural control under which they lived during this year of crisis in the flood. I do believe sincerely that if you will simply allow the scriptures to carry their full testimony concerning the methods God employed to accomplish this vast, tremendously significant universal judgment— that it is perfectly conceivable, perfectly rational and believable that this could have happened. Now, there are vast problems, especially scientific problems involved in this kind of a flood. And of course, living in an age of science as we do in this 20th century, it is almost impossible for a Christian to take any doctrine of Christianity seriously without having to come to terms with the opposition of science, falsely so-called. How do we know that such a flood ever existed, that it ever occurred? I believe that the Bible indicates that this flood, although basically a miracle in the way it began, and in the gathering and care of the animals throughout this year, was nevertheless also a natural catastrophe. May I explain what I mean by that? The flood was not a complete miracle in that all God had to do to bring the water upon the world of living things and air-breathing creatures was to lift up the ocean basins and to release the waters from above. And from that moment on, natural processes took over. God never unnecessarily multiplies miracles anywhere in Scripture. He never unnecessarily sets aside man's energies or abilities. For example, he never even uh, suggested to Noah that he would create an ark for him. Noah was capable of doing it, so God told him to do it, to use his own human ingenuity, wisdom, tools, and so on. And the same thing is true of natural processes. God is the one who created them and controls them. And God never unnecessarily sets them aside to accomplish His purposes. I believe that this is a significant principle for understanding what happened during that year. Think, for example, of this. When God released the waters from above, the laws of gravity took over, and that water came through the atmosphere, forming spherical droplets, just like it does when rain falls today. And when it hit the surface of the earth, it began to remove the soil in great patterns of erosion, creating streams saturated with sediments and vast currents sweeping toward the sea. At the same time, when the waters were pushed up from the oceans beneath and began to encroach ever deeper back and forth inland, higher and higher to the hills and to the mountains, they accomplished exactly what moving waters will accomplish today according to all the known laws of hydrodynamics and the study of floods and water action under flood conditions. In recent years, I believe God has raised up some scientists who are also strong Christians, who have looked very carefully at this whole matter of a universal flood as described in Genesis analyzing it from the standpoint of the known laws of hydrodynamics. One such scientist, with whom I've had the privilege of working for a number of years now, co-author of our book on the Genesis Flood, is Dr. Henry M. Morris, head of the Department of Civil Engineering at Virginia Polytechnic Institute in Blacksburg, Virginia. Dr. Morris has spent a major portion of his life Investigating floods in the realm of hydrodynamics, an important branch of civil engineering. And in the basement of the huge civil engineering building, uh, which he uses at uh, VPI, a hydraulics laboratory has been constructed for the purpose of creating artificial rivers in order to study what moving water can actually do under various conditions different velocities of water moving in different directions, different types of currents, whirlpools, carrying different types of sediments, and what these waters will do to various types of surfaces, erosional and destructive forces that can be created. And in the realm of engineering, it is absolutely essential to know exactly what floods can do because when civil engineers are called upon to build bridges or dams or dikes or aqueducts or other huge structures that have to cope with moving water under flood conditions, they have to know precisely what to anticipate in order to build their structures properly. And several of the principles that Dr. Morris and his colleagues have emphasized with regard to floods that I feel are important for our understanding of the book of Genesis and this great judgment are these. First, moving water under flood conditions has an unbelievable power for destruction. Now, a river can carry an immense load of mud and silt hundreds of miles from its origin to the sea, moving only at, say, four or five miles an hour. But if that river had its velocity suddenly increased to 50 miles an hour, the destructive power of that moving water and its capacity for carrying heavy loads is multiplied tens of thousands of times so that it can carry not simply specks of mud but gigantic boulders on its surface like so many pebbles and smash almost any kind of structure man can build to resist its force. I'm sure all of us have heard things about what local floods can do. Just this spring, it was my privilege to study the effects of a local flood in Johnstown, Pennsylvania that occurred three quarters of a century ago in 1889. When a dam broke 18 miles up the valley from that uh, city that is nestled deep in a valley surrounded by mountains and 20 million tons of water came gushing down that valley and hit the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It is absolutely staggering to the imagination to know what that water did as it moved across that city. Among other things, it picked up 30 railroad locomotives, 75 tons each, and threw them all the way across the city. Killed 2,200 people, some of them so totally destroyed They've never been identified since. And as I stood overlooking the city of Johnstown on a mountain, I saw 777 graves of the unidentified dead of that flood of 1889. That's what a local flood will do. Dear friends, multiply this now in terms of the oceans rising upon the continents and sweeping across the world for a year. Can you imagine any power for destruction more gigantic than this? When the Bible tells us that the world being overflowed with water perished, this implies unbelievable forces from the standpoint of hydrodynamics. Great currents of water hundreds of feet deep sweeping back and forth across this planet would have dislodged, removed, And redeposited every movable substance in the crust of this earth. Can you imagine what would happen to Chicago, Illinois, if a column of water 500 feet deep swept across that city 75 miles an hour? It wouldn't be a problem of cleaning up the city. The problem would be to find the city. And this is what the book of Genesis is talking about when it said that God determined to destroy the earth. There's a second principle about floods that is important for our understanding, and it's this. A flood involving great sweeping currents of water always leaves a telltale mark behind as an evidence that it once swept across that terrain. And it's not the mark of chaotic confusion, as some might think. It's a mark of highly organized, beautifully arranged, parallel, horizontal deposits. Now this, of course, is rather difficult to imagine, because uh, the last thing we, we would call upon to organize things would be a flood. But think with me for a minute about this river moving 50 miles an hour that we spoke of a moment ago. As that river begins to slow down, little by little, in its velocity, it drops out, first of all, the heaviest things, forming a perfect layer on the bottom of the riverbed. And as it slows down a little more, the next heaviest things drop out and form another layer right on top of the first layer without destroying it at all. And as the river slows down more and more, lighter and lighter sediments drop out and form other layers on top of the first ones so that when the flood is over with and the river is returned to normal velocity, you could slice through that riverbed with a knife and see all the materials that it had carried, perfectly sorted according to their size and weight and shape, spread out like layers in a birthday cake. Now, this happens in a delta, an alluvial fan, or anywhere that moving water carrying sediments passes over. This is what we call the principle of hydrodynamic selectivity, in which water selects out the things that it carries and deposits them according to their weight. Now, this really isn't the kind of organization I would appreciate, for example, for my home and my material possessions with the heaviest things all on the bottom and the lightest ones on the top. But when people say, where is the evidence of a universal flood? The answer is this kind of evidence. When you look in the crust of the earth, what do you see beneath your feet? Take for example, the Grand Canyon, one of the most amazing spectacles in this world as you stand on the edge of that canyon and look 5,000 feet down, five miles across to the other side, and hundreds of miles in either direction, east and west, what do you see in the crust of the earth beneath? Layer after layer of horizontal, parallel, sorted materials. As far as I'm concerned, and as much as I've been able to gather from The principles of hydrodynamic engineering, this is an obvious evidence that once upon a time a flood swept over the world so gigantic as to be able to deposit layers thousands of feet deep over hundreds and thousands of square miles. Of course, it's true that modern evolutionary uniformitarian geologists have other explanations for these things. They feel that each layer represents a geologic period of millions of years in which rivers gradually deposited their sediments into deep, or I should say shallow, valleys or geosynclines just below sea level. And that is, these huge layers build up, then the continents lifted above sea level, millions of years passed, and they sank below again. So that each layer represents a geologic period. The problem with this, of course, is that if each layer represents millions of years of deposits, and by the way, that kind of horizontal depositing depositing of sediments by huge rivers is not occurring anywhere today in the world, but assuming that it could have, then the mere uplift of that layer would have twisted it, broken it, eroded it so that when it sank down below sea again, it could not have been horizontal, perfectly horizontal to the next layer. And each layer would be out of line or conformity with each other one. Each would have an obvious evidence of being an entirely different situation, geologically speaking. But when you look into the Grand Canyon and other similar areas around the world, you see horizontal layers from top to bottom, perfectly parallel with no evidence between the layers of any distortion or movement at all. To be sure, we do have mountainous areas of the world where these parallel horizontal layers have been twisted up, but first they were deposited horizontally. And the third thing to notice about these is the fossils that are within them. Perfectly preserved remains of plants and animals hundreds of thousands, millions and billions of them. And of course, we know that today, these kinds of fossil deposits are not being laid down. When fishes die in the oceans, they decompose or are picked to pieces and vanish forever. They don't drop to the bottom of the ocean and become fossils. And the same is true for land animals. But when you look into the crust of the earth, You see, for example, in the coal seams, perfectly preserved leaves and flowers and tree trunks crisscrossing several layers of materials and gigantic masses of vegetation that obviously were suddenly swept by great currents of water and smashed under the tremendous pressures of overlying layers of water and sediment and carbonized. In other words, this is an effect of sudden, catastrophic burial processes, the like of which we cannot see anywhere in the world today, nor can we even imagine according to the natural laws that are observable. And when you see these billions of fishes, perfectly preserved, spread over hundreds of square miles in such as the Devonian strata of rock, and huge dinosaurs and other land animals, and crustaceans such as trilobites, billions of them perfectly preserved in the rocks of the earth. You have here, I am confident, an obvious evidence of the fact that once upon a time a flood of universal proportions swept over this planet, burying all living things. Why is it that geologists refuse to recognize the possibility of such a flood? I am confident that the basic reason, perhaps a subconscious reason, but nevertheless basic, is this. This kind of a flood would require a miracle. And you can't have miracles in modern science. There's no room for miracles. Everything has to be explained in terms, basically, of processes we see in the world today. And yet, the Word of God tells us that there was this kind of a flood. And if we see the evidences of it in the world today and take the book of Genesis seriously, we have a marvelous tie in, I believe, between true science and true scripture on the subject of catastrophism a judgment whereby God destroyed the world of living things at the dawn of human history to accomplish his purposes for men. I believe that the flood, properly understood, provides for us a key for unlocking many of the unsolved mysteries of earth history. What was it, for example, that caused the sudden vast change of climate in this world not many thousands of years ago whereby the polar regions were suddenly gripped by a deep freeze from which they have not to this present hour emerged where vast masses of snow and ice covered hundreds of thousands of square miles of the northern continental continental areas in antarctica too freezing animals by the millions some of them so perfectly preserved having been quick frozen, such as huge mammoths, that the flesh is still fresh today. This couldn't have happened gradually. And yet, if the flood doctrine of scripture be true, then the huge vapor canopy that served as a greenhouse effect for the world before the flood, providing a uniform tropical climate for the whole planet. When that great canopy collapsed for the first time during the year of the flood, the Earth's heat could escape at polar regions, bringing about this sudden change of climate in those parts of the Earth. Likewise, I believe the flood alone can explain such strange discoveries that have been made recently of human footprints preserved in the same strata with the footprints of dinosaurs, which according to evolutionary theory became extinct 100 million years before man appeared. But if the flood doctrine is true, then all the basic kinds of living things that we see preserved in the fossil formations of the earth were buried contemporaneously in the complex movement of currents during the weeks and months of the universal flood. I believe that the flood explains adequately some of the strange situations we find in the mountainous regions of our world where the rock strata are upside down from the order that you would expect them to be if evolution were true. Evolutionists, of course, have long insisted that the deeper you dig into the Earth's crust, the more primitive and simple the animals become, representing earlier stages of Earth history a billion years ago or more. But what are we going to do, for example, with such areas in our own country as the Glacier National Park in Montana, where we find a huge mountain area called the Lewis Overthrust, which has trilobites or crustaceans all the way across the top of the mountain 30 miles wide and 200 miles long, resting perfectly, horizontally, upon another layer underneath it with the bones of dinosaurs. Cambrian rock over Cretaceous shales. Well, of course, evolutionists would never admit that in this particular region, dinosaurs evolved into crabs. This would be highly inconsistent with their theory. And so they insist that the whole upper slab of rock simply slid over sidewise from another region on top of this rock with dinosaur fossils in them. That's why they call it an overthrust. But Dr. Morris and other engineers have looked this over and agree with some geologists who have objectively studied the problem that this is absolutely impossible. 800,000 billion tons of rock simply don't slide 40 miles sidewise on top of other mountains, leaving no evidence of such movement. In the doctrine of the flood, of course, whereas generally sea creatures and bottom feeders in the ocean depths would be buried first, and uh, creatures living in higher zones of life up to the continents would be buried later, but in the chaos and confusion of that great swirling mass of universal waters, anything could be buried under anything else here and there. This, I think, gives us a fascinating clue to one of the greatest neglected areas of study in the relationship between the scriptures and modern scientific theory. I'm happy to report that there are two or three hundred scientists now who have organized what is called the Creation Research Society, which has as part of its statement of faith the universality of the Genesis flood and of its effects, a serious attempt to reinterpret Earth history scientifically in terms of the scriptural frame of reference provided in Genesis. May God enable us as Christians in these days of crisis When the theory of evolution bids well to sweep away the faith of hundreds of thousands of our young people in the historicity of the book of Genesis and of such great miracles as the flood, that we consider carefully the evidences that are available that shed light upon God's word in Scripture. In the Old Testament Psalm number 29, David The sweet psalmist of Israel, the king of the nation, dedicated one of these psalms to the God of the flood. And I would like to conclude this morning with this passage of scripture in Psalm 29 because it has a great message for us today and a lesson to learn with regard to the purpose of the great judgment in the days of Noah. In this psalm, David is emphasizing the power of God's word Especially as it deals with the realm of waters. 29, 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Now notice the climax in verse 10. The Lord sitteth or sits enthroned upon the flood. The flood. Technical Hebrew word, mabul, which refers to the Genesis flood of the days of Noah. Yea, the Lord sitteth as king forever. The greatest single exhibition of God's sovereignty the world has ever seen is when God sat upon his heavenly throne and spoke a God-rejecting world into oblivion through the gigantic destructive powers of our universal flood. This is God's way of saying to mankind today, dear friends, that in spite of appearances, he rules the world. He sits enthroned upon the heavens, and this world is in his hand. And he can speak it to destruction by fire, as he will someday, even as he has once destroyed it by water. And the great lesson we may learn from this, dear friends, is this. We would do well to come to terms with a sovereign creator God who in his grace and love has sent his son to this world to pay the price of sin and to make it possible for men to come to him and to be saved and forgiven and cleansed. May God enable us in the light of these profound truths to rejoice in the fact that our God rules the world and has made it possible for us through Christ to come to him You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and John Whitcomb Jr.'s concluding message on creation that he presented at Winona Lake Bible Conference 1966. John Whitcomb Jr. was a professor of Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us again next week when we bring you a series of messages John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.